Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing right from First and Second Timothy now to Third Timothy. No, not Third Timothy. There's no Third Timothy. The Book of Titus. So, if you turn, if you would turn to the Book of Titus, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And Mark and Doug have Bibles in their hands. I'd love to bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Titus chapter one this morning. problem on this side of the church here. James, do you guys need to separate over here? <laughs> All right, let's get into the word. Titus chapter one. Let's go ahead and read the whole chapter, just the whole thing. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. And hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast a faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict." For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. (laughs) Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this opportunity, Lord, to look to You and to to hear, Lord, from you this morning. We pray, Father, that we would have open hearts to receive all that you have for us today. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to acknowledge or know you as their Lord and as their Savior, we pray, Lord, that their hearts would be touched in such a way that they would give their life to you this morning. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The time I say this morning is Church God's Way. found a story about a couple... A couple who had two little boys, eight and ten years old, and they were really ex- exceedingly mischievous. They were always getting into troubles, and, and their parents knew that, that if there was mischief happening someplace, that their sons had to have been involved. And they were at their wit's end, not knowing what to do about their son's behavior. Well, the mother had heard that there was this new pastor in town 
that had been successful in getting kids on the right path. So he, you know, she asked her husband, what do you think? Should we, you know, send the boys to speak with them? And the husband says, well, listen, we, we've tried everything else. We might as well. So the pastor agreed to speak with the boys, but asked to see them individually, one at a time. So the eight-year-old went first to meet with him, and, and the pastor sat down the boy and, and asked him sternly, where is God? Well, the boy made no response. So the pastor repeated the question, even with a sterner tone, where is God? Again, the boy made no attempt to answer, so the pastor then raised his voice even more and shook his finger in the boy's face and said, Where is God? At that point, the boy bolted from the room, ran directly home, slamming himself in the closet. His older brother followed him into the closet and said, What happened? The younger brother replied, We're in big trouble this time. God is missing, and they think we did it. Listen, bad behavior leads to a bad reputation. Verse 12, we read, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul agreed with that statement. Now that is, unless they were Christian Cretans. Then they were expected, according to chapter 2, verse 12 of Titus, to deny ungodliness and live godly lives. You see, their belief in Christ was expected to influence their behavior as Cretans. In the same way, our belief in Jesus Christ is expected to influence our behavior in our own city. Now, I don't think we can all say, well, you know, Springfieldians are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That's not to say that we don't have our own share of ungodliness and ungodly living in our town. But, but that's why I believe that Titus is such a great book to study, great letter to study. Because Paul's letter to Titus is about what you believe and how that should affect your life and how you behave as a Christian to this world around us. See, just as we finished Paul's exhortation to Timothy in pastoring the church there in Ephesus, we now move to Titus. And Paul is encouraging him in, in pastoring the church there in Crete. And that's why First and Second Timothy and, and Titus are called the pastoral epistles in order to bring encouragement and instruction and even correction to the pastor, but also to those within the congregation, within the church itself. Now, we can break down all of chapter 1 into three sections if you're taking notes, and we're going to look at number 1, the church, number 2, the elders, and number 3, the enemies. Verses 1 through 4, we see what happens when we gather for what's called the church. In verses 5 through 9, we have the elders in the church. In verses 10 through 16, we have the enemies against the church. So, number one, the church. Now, as I briefly said already, as we move on in the letter, it will tell us how men should behave in the church. Moms, how they're to behave more like moms, and dads, how to behave more like dads, and how the church should behave. But, but let's begin by looking at the beginning of this church here in Crete. The beginning of this church came about through the Apostle Paul and Titus as they journeyed together they, uh, through the Mediterranean island. They came to the Mediterranean island of Crete, which is about 135 miles long and about 30 miles wide. It's a mountainous isle, island, and in Paul's day it was quite heavily populated. It's there that they proclaimed the gospel. And as Cretans responded in faith... They were saved and small groups of believers had begun to form throughout the island, meeting in, in private homes. And so Paul says, hey, it's time to start a church here. And as Paul moved on his missionary journeys, he left Titus behind to set the church in order. Now, if you want on Google Maps, like I did, and you can see where uh, 
where the map is at there. It's kind of blurry a little bit. But you can see where Titus traveled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey. You would see that they first went to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem they went to Corinth. Then from Corinth they went to Crete. And then from Crete he went to Dalmatia. Now Dalmatia, we all know, is where they make puppies. All 101 of them. Um, had to put that in there. But to see Titus, he was tested. He was tried. He was trustworthy. How do we know that? Well, first by going to Jerusalem. His first stop. Think about this. The first place Titus goes with the Apostle Paul is there in Jerusalem. And you can almost hear Titus going, Wow, Paul, you want me to go with you to Jerusalem? Man, that is great. Now, what makes this kind of strange is that if you look at Acts chapter 15, it tells us there was this meeting going on in Jerusalem at that time, a council uh, you know, where, where, you remember the council at Jerusalem? It was a council that, that the Jewish Christians, who, by the way, were the very first Christians, they were Jewish, at that council, they had this great debate going on on whether or not the Gentile Christians should be circumcised. And they're wondering, as a group of circumcised men, discussing whether or not the requirements of being a true believer in Christ should be circumcision. And so, uh, they have this council. Now, who decides to go to this council? Titus who happens to be a Gentile Christian. So he's taking a risk here. I mean, thinking, you know, if I'm Titus, and I know they're having a council meeting going on in Jerusalem as whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised, I think I would decide to stay home and just kind of wait and decide afterwards, you know, after the fact, if I want to be, quote, unquote, a true believer. But you see, this just shows the heart of Titus. Because he would say, listen, I don't care what they decide. I'm going to do it. If at that meeting they decide that me as a Gentile and my relationship with God, I need to be circumcised, then so be it. That's the type of guy that he was. Now understand, it doesn't get any easier for Titus. Because from Jerusalem, he goes to all places, Corinth. Now if you're not aware of it, Corinth was not a place that you'd want to say you, were, you went to church at in Corinth. And because if you were referred to as a Corinthian, you were considered you know, a party animal, you're, I mean, you're steeped in debauchery. I mean, this is what the Corinthians were known for. In fact, when people say, oh, I wish, you know, our church was just like the early church. I would say, well, what early church are you talking about? <laughs> Where at exactly? Because as you look at, at Corinth and Paul's letters to them, you would read over and over again things not to do in a church. We learn what not to do. So Titus leaves Jerusalem and, okay, we're, we're leaving Jerusalem. Great, where are we going now, Paul? Corinth. Corinth, great, let's go to Corinth. Well, from Corinth he goes to Crete, where he's left. And we, as we read in verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, uh, we read. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true. Wow, what a great place to start a church. <laughs> so from Jerusalem to Corinth to Crete, and Paul says, see you later, Titus. Titus is left there. Now, knowing Titus' character, after what we just looked at, he's going... Great, look at the opportunities that we have to start a church here. Then we eventually know that, that Titus left uh, Crete and then went up to Dalmatia. Where's Dalmatia? Well, it's none, none other than the place in Yugoslavia that we know today as Bosnia. So it goes from Crete to Bosnia. Man, I like this guy. He's got something special in him that he just keeps on going and going, like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, he's got a drive, he's got determination. And really, he really, is, as Paul says here, he's somebody simply a true son in the faith to Paul. Why? Because, man, he's just following Paul's footsteps. Paul had that same drive. 
Now again, although Paul is writing this to Titus, I know this speaks to you and to me as well. Because if we want to honor God and, and, and with our lives, then we're going to behave like a Titus. Where the Lord leads us, we're going to go in full throttle. We're going to serve as God has called us to serve. Go where God leads. So as we begin this letter, now look at verses 1 through 4. Paul begins, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus and to Son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Man, that is one long sentence. One, but it's full of doctrinal truth. It focuses on, on what Paul's life and ministry was all about. It's, it's, it's upward. It's inward. It's, it's outward. It's upward in worship that we should put God first in everything in our lives and worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's inward that we need to be those who are daily in the Word of God, verse by verse, studying and learning and allowing God's Word to change us. And then it's outward in evangelism, sharing God's Word to the world around us. I mean, look at verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. That, that's upward. That's a faith in God. He's a servant of Jesus Christ first. Then number two, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. That's the inward. The acknowledging of the truth of God's word and allowing it to change us and cause us to be more godly. And then verses two and three is the outward. In the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Outward is the preaching, the word of God going forth. I mean, it just describes what we do as a church. It's upward, it's, it's inward, and it's outward. And I think this is a, a good opportunity for me uh, in this text that we have this morning is to maybe share with you a little bit this morning, those that might be new to Calvary Chapel, new to, to this church, uh, you know, something about Calvary Chapels, where we got our, our, our start from and, and that type of thing. A brief look at a God is at our fellowship individually and, and unique work that God has done in Calvary chapels. We know that there's now over, I think we're close to 2,000 Calvary chapels known. We're, we're, we're a group of non-denominational Christian churches. Began in 1965 in Costa Mesa, California by a man named Chuck Smith who, who's gone on to be with the Lord. Since then, God has raised up many Calvary chapels all over the world in communities where he has, de- he has determined that, that that style, of, God has determined that that style of ministry is needed. You know, I, I like what Chuck Smith wrote in his book, Calvary Distinctives, years ago. He says, if Calvary Chapel is just like the church across the street, then it would better simply to merge the two. Certainly there are churches that share many of our beliefs and practices, but God has done a wonderful work of balance in the Calvary Chapel movement that is, does make us different in many areas. And I like that. Because our, our focus really is on a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book teaching of God's Word and being open to the work and the movement of God's Holy Spirit. Now, just before Pastor Chuck went home to be with the Lord, he had set up the Calvary Chapel Association. There's just a group of like-minded pastors that have been a part of Calvary Chapels for many, many years and, and just put them in a place of leadership to help with the affiliation process. If you want to be known as a Calvary Chapel, you know, what do you have to do? And, and to make sure that we stay true to our distinctives at what makes Calvary Chapel a Calvary Chapel. 
We're independent fellowships that hold these distinctives in common. One of the distinctives is, is, is our heart for worship. Again, it, it's, it's the upward, that we're truly praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord through song. Then there's the inward. You know, there's the verse-by-verse teaching, the chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book, the teaching of the Word of God. Then there's the inerrancy of the Word of God, that, that what God's Word says is true 100%. The teaching of the imminent return of Jesus Christ for a church. And most importantly, reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the outward. But the point is, in ministry, in our fellowship, we are free to follow the leading of God's Holy Spirit on a daily basis as He instructs us how He wants us to minister to the community of believers that we're living in and around here in, in the Ozarks. Now, I might add that, you know, God's leading is different from church to church and and different from within the church. You know, you may come from a different Calvary Chapel and, and, and it was maybe a little bit different than ours. Some Calvary Chapels are more missions-minded. Some may be more evangelical. There may be some more that seems more charismatic. But our goal, our vision for ministry has always been and will be to keep the main thing the main thing and that is the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Now again, not all Calvaries are the same. Something that, that seems good to one church may not be to God's glory in another. Or something that may have been useful at one church may not uh, have, maybe it's run its course and, and, and we move on to something else. Maybe something that was a major focus in your old church is maybe something different in this church. But you see, it's the leading of God's Holy Spirit as, as a leadership, as, as we pray together and, and believe what, what God is doing and we take steps in the direction that God is doing to reach this community to affect changes in, in, in our community. And I love a, a major verse that, that most Calvaries are known for, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Relying on the Holy Spirit. But all starts with coming by faith and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when you, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you become a part of the, of the whole church. You know, as a whole, you have a promise of eternal life. But then you have the church, this Calvary chapel here. And, uh, and I want to back up for, for a moment. I love this. Look at verse 2. This is a great statement. Paul says, And hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now think about that. There are certain things that God cannot do. One of those things is God cannot lie. Well, isn't that a, a great thought? No, God can never do anything that's inconsistent with his nature. You say, well, what, what's his nature? Well, his nature is that he's holy. His nature is that he's righteous. He's just. Those are characteristics of God, and God can never do anything unholy at all. So lying is unholy. He can never do anything that's unrighteous. Well, lying is unrighteous. Lying is unjust. Lying is a horrible thing. So God never, ever lies. Now think about that. The other thing that is we have God's holy word. That's 100% true. The Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. You can bank on it. You can build on it and believe on it. What God says is true. God cannot lie. Now let me say this. Another thing that God cannot do is God cannot save a sinner apart from Jesus Christ. I don't want to get away from our study here, but let me just say that God can't say, well, I know that you haven't believed in my son, Jesus, but oh, I'm going to save you anyway. God can't do that. It would be inconsistent with his nature. And that is something that God cannot do because he's just. He cannot merely overlook sin. God made one way for man to be saved and forgiven of sin. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's why Paul says God promised eternal life in verse 2 before time began. But look at verse 3. He says, has in due time manifested his word through preaching. 
Now think about that for a moment. Don't you think that preaching is kind of strange? I mean, you guys all come in and, 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 and one guy stands up and he just kind of speaks out to you. People enter the kingdom of God by having someone like me stand up and talk for a while and then in the end state the fact that if you would like to know Jesus, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sin. You need to turn from it. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Rely on, cling to, trust in Him. If you do that, you can become a child of God, a new creation in Christ. And that's how people get into the kingdom of God. Now, that's the way that God has ordained it. That's the purpose of God's word, to point people to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these which are, they testify of me. And John 17.3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, as you preach Jesus Christ, as you preach his word, it has an effect on people's lives. God uses that. It's used it for me, you know. You come to that place of acknowledging the truth and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, there's no substitute for teaching and preaching the Word of God. Yeah, we can use movies and we can use dramas and we can use plays and we can have music and other means and tracts and so forth, but God has actually ordained that people hear the Gospel through preaching, through the words. That's an interesting thought. Because some... Churches, they've kind of given up on preaching and teaching. Oh, it's old, it's archaic. You know, we're just going to talk about positive things and not preach the word. God ordained means of communicating the gospel through the preaching. And Paul knew that. And, and he understood that it was a privilege that he had. And now Titus, it would seem, needed to be encouraged to stay true to preaching the word because, again, Crete was a very wicked place. And listen, wherever you go, men are the same. The gospel needs to be preached. Man is sinful, and we live in a sinful world. And whatever city you're in, the gospel needs to be preached. It doesn't matter if your city is more sinful than the next city. It needs to be preached. And Paul is trying to remind Titus that it's a privilege to preach the gospel and to encourage him to stay the course. And I like what Paul says. Look at the end of verse 3. He says that he's been given this privilege to preach according to the commandment of God our Savior, then he says, To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Don't you love that? God our Savior and Jesus Christ our Savior. Clearly pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ. You can't have the Father without the Son. You know, and, I, and I love Jesus Christ our Savior. You know, whenever I, I hear Franklin Graham on TV Anything. He always brings up the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus, you know. And, and whenever you hear, you know, it amazes me how, how the mainstream media, they get offended by that. I mean, you can bring up Allah, you can bring up Buddha, you can even say God. But say the name of Jesus, I'll just break to a commercial. Because that's the divining line. Jesus Christ is God's way to reach man. The only way you can get to God is through Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But again, I love that he says in verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he's given Timothy this encouragement to, to preach the, the gospel and, and, and to make that the most important part of, of, of your, your church and to stay true to the course. But then he, he says, you know, you need elders in the church. And that brings us to point number two, the elders. Look at verse 5. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. Now, just as Paul told Timothy to appoint elders, Paul tells Titus to do the same thing. And we looked at, really, the qualifications of an elders and deacons in 1 Timothy, and we really went into pretty depth there. But we're going to not go as, to, as that much in depth here. But, 
But basically, there's two offices in the church. There's the elder and there's the deacons. An elder would be the same as a pastor or overseers in the church, and the deacon would be those that take care of the physical needs of the church. Now, Paul here in verse 5 tells us that he's to set in order the things that are lacking in the church there in Crete. And, and, and again, that, that they were lacking elders. But that word set in order, it's a medical term. And it's used for setting a bone. Paul is saying for the church in order to function properly, you need to set and order proper leadership within the church. Because if a church doesn't have godly spiritual leaders, it's like a body that has a broken bone. You're not going to heal and you're always going to be in pain. There's always going to be problems. You know, it's hard for your physical body to function with a broken bone. Now let me say this, leadership in the church is hard work. And I'm thankful for those that God has raised up in our fellowship because they know that it's, it's not about titles, it's not about honor, it's not about glory, it's about serving Jesus Christ through serving one another. It's servant leadership. And I recognize the great responsibility that I have in my own life that comes from being a spiritual leader. Because certainly the life of the church quite often and the complexion of the church, the health of the church is a reflection of on where the pastor is at spiritually, where their leaders are at spiritually. And that, to me, is a sobering thought. Many times when I feel as though the church is kind of dead or apathetic or maybe cold, the Lord reminds me to examine my old life. Where are you at, Tom, in your, your relationship with me? If I'm critical of, of the church and, and the Lord reminds me, hey, that's just a reflection of, of me. They're a reflection of my walk and my prayer life and my relationship to God and my zeal and my thirst for the Word of God. If I'm if I'm wanting more evangelism to be done in the church, I have to check myself. Am I doing evangelism? But see, that's, that's why we have elders in the church to help hold us all accountable. That's why Paul says here to Titus, set the church in order. Listen, the Lord is still looking for godly men and godly women to be raised up into leadership. Paul, or rather, Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, tells us, for the eyes of the Lord when to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. The Lord said in Ezekiel 22.30, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. So God is, is looking for those that would step up in the place of leadership. And then he lays out for us what God is looking for in the leader, verses 6 to 9. Look at verse 6. He says, The leader should be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So Paul says, first of all, you need to set an order, you need to appoint elders, and first of all, they need to be blameless. Now this doesn't mean that an elder needs to be perfect or we're all in big trouble. I read a a great illustration of what, what makes for a good pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 12 minutes. He condemns sin soundly but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $80 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $60 a week to the poor. He is 28 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. He is kind, gentle, and handsome. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and he spends most of his time with senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face. Because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. And yet he's always in his office when needed. 
It ends with, if you find a pastor like this, don't let him go. There's no such thing as a perfect pastor. There's no such thing as, as perfect elders, as perfect leaders. The idea here of blameless here is that an elder must be one who can live in such a way where no one can bring an accusation against them. Their lives are lived so consistently and above board that no one can bring an accusation against them. And if they do, it's not going to stick. And I have no hold on them. It's like water off a duck's back. You know, it just rolls off because their lives are lived above reproach. It means a person with a godly character. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. He says, Character is the raw material of life out of which we either by diligence construct a temple or by negligence create a trash heap. It's been said, Character is what God and the angels know of us. Reputation is what men and women think of us. D.L. Moody put it this way, Character is what a man is in the dark. And Spurgeon said, A good character is the best tombstone. See, Paul is saying that a, that a leader, one who is blameless, he needs to be a man of good character. And he goes on, he says, there to be the husband of one wife. So, so those in the ministry, there must be a, a one woman man. That is, he only has eyes for his wife. That is, his love, his wife, that is, his wife needs to be very secure in his love for her. That, that she knows that. Now, if she doesn't feel that way, then he's not ready to be called into the ministry. Because when a man is called into the ministry, his whole family needs to agree with that calling because they're all going to be affected by it. It's like the story I read about a police officer who pulled over a carload of nuns. The cop says, Sister, this is a 70 miles per hour highway. Why are you going so slow? The sister replied, Sir, I saw a lot of signs that said the speed limit is 22. The cop says, Sister, that's not the speed limit. That's the number of the highway you're on. The sister said, oh, silly me, thanks for letting me know, I'll be more careful. At this point, the police officer looks in the back seat where he saw two other nuns, trembling like they were having nervous breakdowns. The cop asked, one more thing, sister, what's wrong with your friends back there? They're shaking something terribly. She says, oh, we just got off Highway 101. <laughs> Listen, the same thing holds true for those in ministry. The whole family is affects everyone is in the car. Everyone in the car. That means that there's an increased spiritual warfare going on that affects the whole family. And you need to be prepared for it. You need to count the cost. And that's why Paul says next in verse 6, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. In other words, Paul is saying, ministry has to be established in your home first before you can have any credibility in the church. The story I read about the first man to scale Mount Everest without oxygen, and he was recovering in a hospital because he had locked himself out of his house and fell off a wall that he was climbing on to get into his house. I mean, here's a guy who conquers every mountain in the world, but where does he fall? At home. In the same way, there are men who can conquer mountains on the job or with their finances. But as far as ministry is concerned, if a man can't keep balance in his own home, Scripture says he's disqualified from ministering the church. Now, that's not a condemnation. That's just, a, just an exhortation to reprioritize, to, to let men, let's get our, our priorities back in order. Get your home squared away, Dad. Get your kids grounded, walking with the Lord. Do whatever you want to do in ministry here at the church, you can do with your kids. You can lead them in worship. You can share communion with them. You can preach to them as long as you want. And I have certainly done that. More importantly, you can teach them the Word of God. 
Yes, true ministry may one day extend beyond your family, but not before it's established within your family. He goes on, look at verse 7. For a bishop, again, that's the same title for an elder or pastor or an overseer, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed. That's an interesting one, self-willed. What a disaster that brings when a pastor or minister is self-willed. See, I'm not to direct or lead this church according to, to my wants, my will, my desires. I'm to seek the will of God, the direction of God for this congregation, and not try to impose my desires or my will upon the church. He goes on, not quick-tempered, so you don't fly off the handle easily. You don't lose your temper in the drop of a hat. I like what Chuck Swindoll writes, a good leader knows how to take the heat without spreading the flames. Paul goes on, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable. Not given to wine. Let me camp out here for just a second. My personal conviction, if you are a leader in the church, you shouldn't drink at all. It blurs the senses, it clouds the mind, and it makes you emotionally unstable. God wants us to be clear thinking, alert, discerning individuals capable of making accurate decisions. We're told in Proverbs 31, verse 4 through 6, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all that afflicted, give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Listen, we forget the word easy enough when we're sober. Okay, therefore, we can't afford to have leaders who are less than sober. And I feel very, very strong about this because I believe the times around us are influencing the ministry rather than the other way around. More and more churches are going, oh, it's okay to drink here and drink there. I can't think of a single good thing that comes from drinking. But I can think of many, many bad things that come from it. Broken homes, violence, accidents, people killed on the road by drunk drivers, addictions, destroying your health. The list goes on. From my perspective, drinking will never make anything better, only worse. Now, Paul goes on, look at verse 8. He says, an elder or leader should be hospitable. Now, that means they should love strangers. A pastor has to love strangers. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to invite every homeless person into your home. Because then you're going to have problems in your home with your wife. And let me tell you that. But, but it does mean you have to have a love for strangers. You have to the gift of hospitality. He goes on, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Verse 9, holding fast to faithful words as he has been taught. I love that verse. Holding fast the faithful words as he has been taught. It reminds me of one of David's men, a man named Eleazar. The Israelites were fleeing from the Philistines. But Eliezer, who names means God is my help, grabbed his sword, stood his ground, and it says in 2 Samuel 23.10 that though his hand was weary, his hand stuck to the sword. May we be those that are sticking to the Word of God, the sword of the Word of God, that we don't let it go. We take it everywhere we go. It's been said a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Get in the Word, stay in the Word, make it a non-negotiable priority in your daily life. This is what Paul is saying is a qualification for, for, for an elder or a pastor. He goes on in verse 9, that he, may, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The word sound doctrine means right teaching. We're going to get into more of that next week into chapter 2. But let me say this, the greatest need of the church today is not less doctrine, it's more doctrine, teaching about God, about salvation, 
but ourselves, about character, about the church, and about family. Our greatest need is to know God better. We can only learn from that, from His Word. Never sell doctrine short. False doctrine promotes controversies and strife, but sound doctrine produces a dynamic love for God and His Word. And that brings us to our third point, the enemies. Paul gives us this, this warning in verse 10. He says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now those of the circumcision, this is a reference to the Jews and the Judaizers who said you must be circumcised to be saved, you must abide by certain dietary laws. He goes on in verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped to subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, and Paul goes on and says, verse 3, this test... Testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. I love this. You know, Cretans, one of them said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says, yep, that's true. Now, he's not saying all of them are that way. He's, he's generalizing. He's saying, you know, that, that, but, but I mean, talk about Paul being politically correct. I mean, that was not politically correct. But he didn't care. I just admire his courage and his honesty. He's not afraid to go on record saying, yeah, there's these false teachers there. And they're causing harm and they're, they're spreading false doctrine. And they're in it for the money. And these Cretans, they're prone to lies and they're prone to laziness. They're teaching fables. Paul says to Titus, you need to stand against this. You've got to deal with them. You know, sadly, there's so many pastors and, and, and the leaders of church, they just don't deal with, with, with anything. They let just anything come in and these false teachers come in and, and just spread like cancer in a congregation. and It's destructive. It needs to be dealt with. Listen, one of Satan's favorite hunting grounds is within the fellowship of believers coming into the church. Peter, Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 12, or 2, 1 and 2. He says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. That's what Peter says. Listen to what Jude says in Jude uh, verse 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen then to what Paul says in Acts 20, verse 28 through 30. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves will rise, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. You see, the hunting is taking place among you, said Peter. It takes place as certain individuals creep in unnoticed, said Jude. It takes place from among yourselves, said Paul. And then Paul uses graphic illustration saying, you're like a flock of sheep, God's flock, and the devil sends wolves and sheep's clothing among you to devour you. So in the church, the enemy may be among you. But listen, so are your elders. And hopefully they're not one and the same. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but you see, Paul, he's comparing the elders of the church to, to shepherds. 
who in this illustration would risk their lives to protect the flock from the savage enemies. Listen, I have the utmost confidence in the elders that God has raised up and placed in, in this church here. And if you need biblical counsel for any reason, if you need prayer for any reason, I trust these guys 100% to pray with you and help you and point you in the right direction. But I will also say, if you come in here wanting to spread false teachings and lies and fables, watch out. Because they're thoroughly equipped to deal with the wolves quickly and efficiently. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Even in their mind and their conscience, they're defiled. He's talking about these false teachers. And he's describing certain Jews who believed in certain foods and animals and persons and, and objects were defiled in and of themselves. And as you come in contact with them, something you're defiled and you're unfit for worship and you're not a Christian. And these Judaizers are mixing the law with grace. Or if you eat this, this food, then, then, then you're really not a Christian. But I say, well, if you go to Taco Bell, then you're unfit for worship. Okay, they may have a point there, but, but, but no. But see, what these, these false teachers failed to realize is that a relationship with Jesus Christ abolished all the religious rituals. It's not about rituals. It's about, it's about a relationship. Jesus said there in Mark 7, verse 15, there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Paul says those who think otherwise, look at verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. In other words, their walk doesn't match their talk. Their confession of faith in Jesus Christ is denied by their conduct in his church. Their bad behaviors led to a bad reputation. Therefore, Paul declares them abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work in the sight of God, regardless how men see them. So what should be done about these people, these false teachers that come in? Well, Paul actually has laid it out mostly in, in chapter 1 and, and chapter 3. Number, this, listen to what Paul tells Titus that he needs to do. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He says, by sound doctrine, exhort and convict those who contradict. That's the first step. Titus 1.11, whose mouth must be stopped. So that's the second step. Number, uh, number 3, verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And number 4, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So if someone's coming into the church, and they want to teach a false doctrine in the church. We're instructed here with the care of overseeing the church as pastors, as elders, as leaders, to exhort such people using God's word effectively while seeking to convict them of their false teaching. While this is going on, we need to make sure that they do not go on spreading their false doctrine and deception. If it's necessary, they're to be rebuked a second time, again, with a view towards winning them to the faith, after two such encounters, if they persist in their ungodly behavior, they're to be publicly rejected from the fellowship of believers, not allowed back in this church. Now, thank God we have not had to do that here. We've come close. We've had to con confront false teaching. We've had to, to get face-to-face -face in people's face over this, but we've not taken it to the next step. Mainly because they haven't been back. But, but, uh, 
But here's my point. And all of these things, as a church, as a congregation, we need to be praying, uh, first and foremost, for the leadership of the church, for wisdom of the church. That we as a church, we hold on to sound doctrine. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. Uh, those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. See, God has called us as a church, Calvary Chapel, uh, to be in His Word, as we hear His Word, to allow it to change our lives, to acknowledge it as truth, that we would live godly lives, to raise up godly leaders within the church for the purpose of, of, of looking out for our needs, our spiritual needs for one another, but also to, to look out for enemies that would come against the church, to help build the body of Christ and minister to your spiritual needs. Let me tell you, we have elders that are looking out for you. And if we are all diligent and, and are watching out, then we'll be less likely to become prey for our enemies. Amen? Listen, as we close this morning, as I say every week, every, every Sunday, if you need prayer for any reason, the elders are up front and would love to, to pray with you and for you. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ. Man, we're here for you for that as well. We'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you, utilize that ministry. Utilize what God has given for us. Pray, pray for the leaders and pray about being a leader yourself, stepping up and being, serving in that capacity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, many things that I've read this morning and studied have convicted my heart. Lord, I pray, Lord, as, I've, as we've heard these things, Lord, that the conviction wouldn't stop with just the conviction, but there would be change in our lifestyles, Lord, change in, in the way we see things, Lord God. Work that, what we've heard, Lord, into our hearts. Work that out of our lives, we pray, Lord, that, that you would use us for your glory and for your honor. Lord, we do pray for the leadership in this church, Lord, for wisdom, for guidance, Lord. We pray for direction for this church, Lord, as you open up doors and opportunities for ministry, Lord, we're excited for the great things you have in store for us. And we just pray, Father, that we would go, not by power, not by might, but by your Spirit, and be led by your Spirit. And finally, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to come to know you as your Lord and as their Savior, Lord, that they would surrender their hearts today to you. They would not leave here without making that commitment to you, Lord God. So we thank you for this time. We give you all the praise and glory. Let's do your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.